I want you to turn to the book of Malachi, if you will, to the third chapter. Now I have a um, disclaimer I need to make in the beginning, and I talked about it a little bit in the early service. This is the time of uh, year where we um, give emphasis to stewardship, and uh, it's not a sermon on money I want to talk about today. If you go away from here saying, every time I go to church, the preacher preaches on money, you're telling on yourself because I just do it one time a year. I mean, that means that you just came one time this year. Second part of the disclaimer is, is that really this is not a sermon on money, and it's not a, a push to get folks to give because we need the money. We don't. Um, I may commend you by up front here, your giving. I, um, I know you know that this year, this church has given a, a, a record amount, a historically record amount of giving through this church. It's absolutely astounding to me, amazing to me, how generous you folks have become. Notice, have become. And so what I want to do this morning is really talk about some basic laws that have to do with how we handle what God has given us. Listen to it. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord host. But you say, how shall we return? Will a man rob God? Yet you have robbed me. But you say, have we, how have we robbed thee? Here's how we've done it. In tithes and offerings. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house and test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows, then I will rebuke the devourer of you so that it may not destroy the fruits of the ground, nor will your vine in the field cast its grapes, that is, drop its grapes before they're mature, says the Lord of hosts. And all the nations will call you blessed, for you shall be a delightful land, says the Lord of hosts. Now when God created His universe, He, he created a, a harmonious whole. And He put everything in operation perfectly as it is. And everything operates in, harm, in harmony. Some have, have even shared what it would be like if the earth were tilted just an eighth of an inch on its axis more, or the sun was an inch closer to the earth than it is. Everything is put together in this universe in harmony, and everything works as a harmonious whole. And God, when He created the universe, established certain laws fixed laws 
And if we are, um, if we show respect to these laws and are kind to them, they bless us. But if we disrespect the laws, the fixed laws of the universe, they bring pain and cursing to us. For example, the law of gravity. How wonderful it is to have the law of gravity. You were sitting in that pew this morning without a seat belt because of the law of gravity. And were it not for that law, we'd be reading our songbooks off the ceiling. If you've seen illustrations of it as you've watched these astronauts in weightlessness in space. So if you live in respect and honor the law of gravity, it blesses you. But if you disrespect and dishonor that law, it will break you. I mean, you get up on top of this church building and say, I'm not going to honor the law of gravity. I'm just going to jump off. And what will happen is, is that the law, you won't break the law of gravity. It'll break you. Now, there was a little boy in our church, and we, we attended in Abilene. When we first went to college, he was a clone of, of Dennis Amenis. Looked just like him, acted like him. And one Sunday we got to church, we, we, had, the, we had the training unit for little kids, and he was there, he had his, his face was skin up and blue and, and scratched and had scabs on it. I said, man, what happened to you? And his mother said that he put on his Superman cape, tied it around his neck, had on his Superman suit, and got up on the top of his slide. Now you've already anticipated. He stretched out his arms and he just knew that he could fly. And so he leaped off of his slide with his arms outstretched and buried his face in the ground. Now, so if you break the law of gravity, it's going to break your face or, or something else about you. So that when you get these laws, fixed laws, live in respect to them and they respect you. Now there are certain spiritual laws. There is the law of possession and the law of provision. Now the law of provision is, is that God is the provider of everything. That He is the sole source of all that is. The rain that comes, the, the sun that shines, the air we breathe. That all that is provided is provided by God. He is the sole provider. Now there's something about the law of provision that we need to remember. And it's this, that God makes the provision before the need ever arises. It illustrate, he illustrates that in creation. He created the air before he created the lungs. I mean, he didn't create man and say, now hold your breath, tomorrow you can get some oxygen. And he created the, the water before he created the fish. He didn't create the fish, put him out on the ground and say, now just hang in there, fella. Tomorrow we get some water for you to swim in. Before there was the need, he provided for it. That's true with regard to salvation. The lamb was slain before the foundation of the world. That means that before you and I ever sinned against God, He had already provided a Savior for our sin. So that the law of provision is, is that God provides for the need and He provides it before we ever need it. Now watch this. There is also the law of possession. Now the law of possession says that God is not only the provider of everything, He is the processor of everything. The scripture says that the cattle on a thousand hills and the silver and the gold belongs to Him. The world and all that is in it belongs to Him. He is the possessor of it. Now this is how it works. If a person honors the law of possession, it releases the provider to provide. 
And that's what this text says. And the law of possession is represented by the tithes and the offerings, and the law of provision is represented by the grapes and the crops and the cattle. And what God is saying is this, that if a person honors the fact that he possesses everything with his tithes and offerings, that frees God to provide for man everything he needs. Now, I'm not one who believes in this um, health and wealth philosophy. And when a preacher gets up and talks about the fact that if you're faithful to God, he'll make you rich, go preach that in Guatemala and come back and see how it works. But what I do believe is this, is that if a guy is faithful, if a person is faithful in the law of possession and he recognizes God is the possessor of everything, he can count on God to provide for every need he has. The law of possession respected releases him to, 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 to provide for our need. Now there is a question in this text that needs an answer. The question is, will a man rob God? I have a greater question than that one. Can a man rob God? I mean, how do you rob God? Do you take a pistol and hold it up, in the up toward the heaven and say, okay, I'm going to fork it over or I'm going to fire into the air? Uh, how can a person rob God? Well, the clue to that is in the, in the word rob. It's the only time that word is used in the Bible. It comes from the root Jacob. Now everybody knows who Jacob was and what Jacob did. Jacob was this schemer that, that, that defrauded his brother of his blessing. He was a, a deceiver. If you want to talk about a deceiver or a defrauder, you think of Jacob. He was a person who circumvented the law in order to get what he wanted so that he was a defrauder or a deceiver. He circumvented or went around. A good word for the word rob here would be the word embezzle. So the question is, will a man embezzle from God? Now there is a vast difference between embezzlement and robbery. When a person robs somebody, he, go down, he goes down to the bank and gets a pistol. Don't, don't try this. Gets a pistol, he goes down to the bank, and he puts it in the face of the teller and says, hand over your money. And he gets in his hands what his hands have no right to handle. I mean, he has in his, in his paws money that he has no right to have in his hands. But when a person embezzles, he handles something that he has a right to handle. In fact, the Bible says in the beginning, God put man in charge of everything and made him responsible for it. And so man, it's not a matter of taking something he has no right to handle. It's a matter of mishandling something he has every right to handle. That's what robbing God means. It means that I have taken something that I have a right to have and I have not used it in the way it was intended to be used. That's embezzlement. And embezzlement is the greater sin. For when a person embezzles from someone, he's violating a trust, he's betraying a trust, somebody has believed in him and trusted him, so he's placed in his hands something to handle. And the sin of embezzlement is the greater sin than the sin of robbery. Now, I want to give you a principle that you need to write in your Bible. 
Now, everything I've ever said, you've heard, I'm going to say you've heard before. In fact, you've been in my Sunday school class. You heard, you heard this not long ago. But, so I want to give you this principle. You may have already written in your Bible. Some of you have. And I want you to write this in the, in, in the front of your Bible. I did a funeral not long ago, and I asked the people, I said, would you let me have this, the Bible so I could use it? And when I opened it up, there was this principle written in there. Faithful to the end to their pastor. Okay. Now here's the principle. Watch this. God reserves, always reserves something in the physical realm. Let me give time to write that down. God always reserves something in the physical realm to remind man that he, God, is the sole possessor of everything. And we'll say it again for emphasis. God always reserves something in the physical realm where man obtains his living to remind man that he, God, is the sole possessor of everything. Now, let me give you some illustrations of that principle. He did it with a tree, T-R-E-E. -E. And God put Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, and He said to Adam and Eve, He said, Now, of all the trees of the garden you can eat, now think about that. This garden of beauty and plenty, and every tree in the garden they could eat of, of the tree except one. And God said, Now, the tree in the midst of the garden, you can't eat that, you can't even touch it whether it's an apple or whatever it was. These other trees help yourself, but there is one tree you cannot touch in the midst of the garden. That is, you live from the middle, not in the middle. Now, the principle is, is that God always reserves something in the physical world where man obtains his living to remind man that he, God, is a sole possessor. That tree you cannot have. Number two, he did it with a day. He said, you got seven days. There's seven days in creation. Now, six of those days you can work, but on the seventh day you cannot work. You're not to work. That day belongs to me to remind you that I'm the sole possessor of your time. Now, it might be, you know, it might be Sunday, but it might be Tuesday for some people according to their work schedule. But there is one day, he says, that's reserved for me that nobody is to violate because I'm the sole possessor of your time. He did it with a city. Now, have you ever wondered how those people survived in that day and time? Well, they survived on the spoils of battle. And they'd take these cities and they'd take spoils, they'd take the rewards of the battle, and they live off of it for the rest of the year. And he said, now, when you come to Jericho, you can't have the spoils of Jericho. I'm reserving that city. You cannot touch what is there. You remember Achan did, and, and, and the armies of Israel suffered a horrendous defeat in the next battle because God always reserves something in the physical realm where man obtains his living in order to remind man that he's the sole possessor of everything. He did it with a year. Now watch this carefully. Some of you know, understand what the sabbatical year is about. It means that every seventh year, every seventh year, 
the land was to rest. They could work the land for six years, but the seventh year they couldn't. They had to just quit working the land. It was called the, the year of the rest, the land rest. Now, let me show you something interesting. A guy called in, I used this illustration years ago in 1990, as a matter of fact, I looked it up. A guy was watching on television, he called in and said, I want to know where you got that illustration. 490 years after Moses gave the law called the sabbatical land rest law, 490 years after that, they went into exile. Now for 490 years, they did not obey the sabbatical law. 490 years. And they went into exile, and their exile was 70 years. Now, it doesn't take a genius to figure out that if they're 490 years and every seventh year belongs to God and they didn't obey the law, they owed God 70 years. And it is not coincidental that that was the exact length of time they were in captivity. Now, I want you to check me out on that, so I want you to look back to 2 Chronicles. It's the Old Testament book, not Corinthians, 2 Chronicles, chapter 36, verse 20. This way he says, Give you a little time to look it up. 2 Chronicles 36, verse 20. And those who had escaped from the sword, he's talking about when the Babylonians came against Jerusalem. When those who had escaped from the sword, he carried away to Babylon. And they were servants to him and to his sons until the rule of the kingdom of Persia to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. All the days of its desolation, it kept Sabbath until 70 years were complete. Now what he's saying in Second Chronicles is this, is that God took them into captivity to get his years back they owed him. Pretty profound thought. You owe me 70 years, and God has a marvelous way of collecting his debts. Now, the way God, what God reserves in the physical realm to remind us that he is the sole possessor is the tithe. He reserves that in the physical realm. Now, a couple of lessons from this are questions. One question is, is a question that uh, a little boy asked me one morning. Well, I was telling him in early service that some, sometimes these college students, they'll come up and they'll say, was that story really true? Well, most of them are. They're true whether they happen or not. No, they, this is a true story. This lady came up one time, and I was pastor of a church out in West Texas. She had this little kid with her, a little boy. And I could tell by the look on her face that she was about to nail me, and she was going to love it. You could just see it in her eyes. Okay, big guy, I've got you right where I want you. She said, Jimmy has a question he wants to ask. And I could tell she was just dying to hear my answer. And here was the question, Jimmy said. Preacher, how does God get his money? Good question. I mean, do the ushers go outside and just kind of throw it up in the air? You know, how, does, how does God get his money? Let me tell you how God gets his money. He gets it from us. 
Now let me tell you what I'm talking about. Watch carefully. Don't lose me now. Let's suppose there's somebody sitting here on the front pew here this morning who has a need, maybe a missionary to Uganda. And he's sitting there and he has a need. This man is in our service and he, 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 is, he respects the law of possession. He lives on the basis that God is the provider and the possessor of everything. He's come into our service and he has a need. You know what happens? God impresses some of us to give to that need. Sometimes we don't even know that the need is there. We just feel the impression of God to give. Isn't that right? Now, let me tell you a true story. I was, I was working with a family. They don't even live here anymore. They live way down in, in, on the East Coast now. But I was working with this family and their children. And this lady had terrible teeth. She had to drink from, through a straw. She couldn't even put temperature, cold or hot, on her, on her teeth. The worst teeth I have ever seen. I mean, every one of them were just decayed and rotten. And her gums were rotten. And she had lived a, a great part of her adult life with these horrible teeth. And, and I was working with them, this family, and I got to love them. I, I really did, and I, I have great, I have great love for them and their children. And one day, I was sitting at my desk, and God said to me, not in an audible voice, but just in my spirit, He said, Gerald, you need to fix her teeth. Well, not being a dentist. You know, I had to figure that out. He said, you need to get her teeth fixed. So I called a dentist, found out that this cost was just totally prohibitive. She's going to have, she had been to the dentist. She's going to have to have surgery, and it was just long, detailed, drawn-out deal. But God said, you need to provide for her teeth. So I just told her, I said, I told the dentist, I said, I'm going to send you a patient. I want you to fix, I said, can you give us a discount? We worked all that out. I said, You're going to, I'm going to send her to you. I'll pay you when I get the money. And I, I told them, I, I called them, they came by, and, they, and she just sobbed, she was so happy. She went down and started getting her teeth fixed. Now here's this bill building up down there. I didn't have a cent. One day, the phone rang. True story. I'll go get the lady. She's old and not here today, but I could get her. And let her testify to this very fact. I, I, a phone rang, and this elderly lady called and said, Pastor, I've got a little extra money, and I just feel led to give this to you, and you use it however you feel like it's necessary to use. Now, I don't have to tell you how much it was. It was the exact amount of the need of the woman. Besides that, a guy came in and said, you know, I, somehow this week I felt impressed to give Ed a little extra money. How can you use it? Gave a little above that just for, you know, a tip, you know, to, to the dentist. Now, that's how it works. Now, watch this carefully. When a person lives... Uh, you know, respecting the law of possession. God provides through His people. And He impresses us to give. And that, that's why our responsibility as church leaders is so profound, is that we are faithful in our stewardship in the handling and the use of it. But God knows the need, and God provides for the need by impressing His people. And when He impresses you folks, you better give. 
Now, have you ever wondered, you know, have you, has it ever bothered you that it says, God says I own everything but I don't have anything unless you give it? That's called an antinomy. And an antinomy is this. The definition of an antinomy is two parallel truths that are, seem irreconcilable but both are true. Two truths that are parallel seem irreconcilable, but both are true. And this antinomy is, is that God owns everything, but He doesn't have anything unless you give it. Which means that we live in this awesome responsibility, in the realm of this awesome responsibility, that when God moves on our heart, He knows there's a need somewhere. See what I'm saying? Now, this is true. Now watch this. If... If I do not honor and if I do not respect the law of possession, if I don't believe that God is the sole owner of everything represented by the tithe, then I don't have a right to ask Him for anything in prayer. Because if I reject the law of possession, then I have rejected the law of provision. I can't expect God to provide if I don't respect the fact that he's the sole owner. I mean, you don't have to be a tree full of owls, you know, to be wise enough to figure that one out. Now, a few days ago, Dr. Ed Bird's father was in this service, and he's Dr. Ed Bird as well. He gave me a marvelous book. And I sat down, I read this book, and I want to tell you about something in closing. It's a book of his sermons, really, a compilation of his sermons. And in one of the sermons, he talks about a book he read entitled The Effects of the Sea by Rachel Carson. And, and in this book, she, she has a chapter about the, uh, the effect of storms along the seacoast back in the eastern seaboard. And these storms will come, these waves will come armed with huge rocks and boulders. And, and she told about the time when one of these storms came up and it threw a boulder weighing 130 pounds. It hurled it in the air and it, and it hurled it over the lighthouse on Tillanook uh, Reef. It, uh, that, that is a, a lighthouse that stands on a rock 100 feet above sea level. It threw this 130-pound missile over the lighthouse and when it came down, it made a 20-foot hole in the, in the house. And she told about a place where there's a lighthouse that, that stands 300 feet above sea level and these storms will come crashing into the rocks just throwing fragments of rocks up like confetti and these rocks will break the lights out and the wind is out on the lighthouse. Do it all the time. And listen to this. Rachel Carson said, are you listening? It's dangerous to be a keeper, a tender, of the light. You know what happens when the light goes out? When a surgeon is performing a surgery, there's a momentary blackout before the emergency generators kick on, and that moment of darkness could be a moment that determines life and death. You know what people do when they go out in the jungle? They make a clearing and they build a fire. And they know as long as the fire burns and the light is there, the creatures of the jungle they can hear on the outsides of the clearing will stay away. But let the light go out and the beasts come. You let the light go out and 
in this community. You let the light go out and the jungle comes and everything that's in the jungle. I tell you, it's a dangerous thing to be a tender of the light. And she concludes her chapter with this letter written by a woman to a newspaper in New York. Listen to it and I'm through. I was living at Sandy Hook when I met Jacob Walker. He kept the Sandy Hook lighthouse. He, he took me to that lighthouse as his bride. I enjoyed that, for it was land on land that I could keep a garden and raise vegetables and flowers. After a few years, my husband was transferred to Robin's Reef. The day we came here, I said, I won't stay. The sight of water, whichever way I look, makes me, look, makes me lonesome and blue. I refused to unpack the boxes in my trunk at first. I unpacked them a little at a time. After a while, they were all unpacked, and I stayed on. My husband caught a heavy cold while tending the light. It turned into pneumonia. It was necessary to take him to Smith Infirmary on Staten Island, where he could have better care than I could give him at the lighthouse. I could not leave the light to be with him. He understood. One night while I sat up there tending the light, I saw a boat coming. Something told me what news it was bringing me. I expected the words that came up to me in the darkness. We're sorry, Ms. Walker, but your husband is worse. He's dead, I said. We buried him in the cemetery on the hill. Every morning when the sun comes up, I stand at the porthole and look in the direction of his grave. Sometimes the hill is white with snow, sometimes it's green, sometimes it's brown. But there always seems to come a message from the grave. It's what I heard Jacob say more than anything else in his life. Just three words. Mind the light. Ms. Walker was 70 years old when she told this story to a New York newspaper reporter. And her husband had been dead for 32 years. I have only one thing to say to you, my dear people. Tend the light. Let's pray. Our Father, we, are, we acknowledge that you are the possessor of all that we have. The next breath we breathe, the next pain we feel, the next moment we live. And we acknowledge, Father, your possession of our time, of our money, of our abilities, so that the light on this corner and from this church would never, ever, ever go out. And we accept the awesome responsibility of tending the light here. Grant us courage, grace, and will to do it. For I pray in Jesus' name.
I'm going to ask you to make a commitment this morning that might relate to your possessions. I'm not afraid or embarrassed or ashamed to ask you to commit yourself to be a tither. Or maybe to ask you to make a commitment of your time. I'm not, a, I'm not ashamed to ask you to commit your time your abilities, your talent, your gifts. Or maybe this morning a commitment as one man in the early service came to commit his life to church membership or to give your life to Christ first time. You've, maybe you've never given yourself to Jesus in the initial act of salvation. While we stand to sing, we invite you to come.